the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to have you another evening, another weeknight. It is Tuesday evening, so we have the opportunity to uh, consider more of the stuff of the great Christian thinkers in history, uh, as we do within the context of church history. Certainly, right now, we're still in the evangelists, so uh, tonight we have the opportunity to talk about Luke. We've already touched upon uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, and John, and we decided to take up Luke uh, as the last evangelist because sequentially this will allow us to uh, head into Acts, because uh, as many of us know, Luke, of course, course, is the author of Acts. And I will be doing this with uh, John O'Hare, parishioner over at uh, St. John the Baptist Catholic Church and retired educator. John, it's good to have you with me another night. Good to be here again, Joe. Thank you. So, John... Luke is uniquely important to our study, you know, because as we talk about church history and the great Christian thinkers in history, it is Luke that really helps us better understand early, early church history, certainly in his gospel, but also in the book of Acts that we're going to be talking about in upcoming weeks. It was a few weeks ago that I noted that if you were to look at certain books in both the Old and New Testament, you can pull out 14 books that really draw out the historical narrative of salvation history. Genesis, uh, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, we have Ezra, Nehemiah, Second Maccabees, and the two New Testament books that really continue the narrative of salvation history, John, is Luke and the book of Acts. And I talk about this because it was really important for us to see that it is about this sequence. It is about this ordered account, if you will, this rendering, ordered rendering, um, that allows us to get a stronger picture of early Christian church history. Uh, One of the Bible teachers uh, on the radio did a history of the Bible, and the only New Testament things I think he did include were Luke and Acts. I mean, you may know his name, but yes. I wanted to point that out. They, the books you mentioned, plus Luke and Acts. Yes. Yes, and so for us, it's it's really important to take this up. And so we'll, we'll talk about the, uh, you know, this, this, the, some aspects of the, the sequence and why it's important, but then also what is unique to the Gospel of Luke. Certainly we're going to talk about Mary, and also, arguably— the two most famous parables, the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. So tonight we'll also take up the Prodigal Son with some reflections on the Good Samaritan. Who is Luke? John, who is Luke? He is a Gentile uh, physician, a Gentile physician who was a companion to Paul. If you were to go to Colossians 4.14, uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, uh, we, we read of Luke as a companion to Paul. The larger theme to his gospel 
is that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, excuse me, is the Messiah promised to the Jews in the Old Testament. And of course, John, by his suffering death, he has entered into the glory of God and therefore, and thereby rather, has affected the salvation of all mankind from sin and death. Fair enough, that's an obvious point, Joe. I mention that, John, because we take it for granted. <laughs> we take it for granted. The larger themes and overarching themes to this gospel is that Jesus Christ came for the salvation of Israel, the chosen people, the salvation of the nations, that his forgiveness extends into all Gentile nations, and salvation of the lowly. And I tell you what, he, does, he wants to make sure, and that is Luke, that we get that, that we understand that for what it is. I believe Luke is the only non-Jewish writer in the entire Bible. Yes. And so he was interested in the salvation of Gentiles. Yes, which is very important when you start putting this uh, in the context of who he was writing to, right? I mean, this is a very sophisticated gospel, and certainly uh, in reading the gospel text carefully, you quickly find that yeah, there's a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. But he is yeah. also, John, he is also writing to the the Gentile nations, the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. And he's letting them know that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the Messiah promised to the Jews in the Old Testament. Um, I know again, we think, well, you know, that's obvious. It's not so obvious in the first century. It's not so obvious in the latter half of the first century. It's still being debated, still being talked about. And so this gospel is very important to us. Uh, so it has been called the gospel of mercy and universal salvation because Luke stresses the fact that the redemption merited by Jesus is intended for the whole world. Now, the gospel of Luke in its opening verses has some very important words for us, John. He gives an ordered account of Jesus' life from the announcement of his birth to the ascension. Like a good doctor, we have to appreciate this aspect. <laughs> He's a doctor. You know, doctors are systematic in their thinking. They're structured, they're ordered, right? Like a good doctor, he keeps things orderly, systematic, clean, right? This is who a Luke is. Uh, so he opens up in these verses and I'll go to uh, verse 3. If you can read verses 3 and 4 for me, John. Okay. Um, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. So in that last word, informed, a very important word. It's, it it's actually where we get the word catechesis. Um, for those of you uh, out there who are involved in religious education, you've probably heard this term before, uh, catechesis, or um, you've maybe heard someone say, I'm a catechist. Who is a, a catechist? What is catechesis? Essentially, it is a more structured rendering of the teachings of Jesus Christ. It literally means to inform someone, right? And this is what this word means. The Greek is actually katekeo, to inform or to instruct. 
uh, one translation has to resound, right? Because all of our words are an echoing of our Lord's words, right? So we, we are resounding. And who better to do this, John, than Luke, where he offers up this very orderly, sequential, neat, clean, sophisticated to some extent account of the life of Christ and the miracles he performed. I assume that Theophilus, the imaginary Theophilus, has already heard of Christ. How many people have heard of Christ and of the resurrection and don't go to church? That's where catechesis comes in. There's a reason why we go to church, and I think that's what Luke is trying to accomplish in this gospel. Yeah, and he certainly emphasizes, you know, at both the close of this gospel and the beginning, you know, what are our Lord's words? Yes. You know, go therefore and teach, baptize and teach. I mean, Christ set up a teaching program. You know, and what's going on here, John? The more we come to know about Jesus Christ, the more reasons we have to love Jesus Christ. This is why we go to Sunday school, quote-unquote. This is the reason why we, we have our Bible studies. This is the reason why, um, I dare say, <laughs> listen to a few radio programs, yes. right? So that, we, so that we might have the opportunity to reflect deeper into um, the richness of our faith, the heritage of our faith, the beauty of our faith, not as something aloof from everything, no, John, but that which is practical, concrete. And this is what Luke is about. He's about, he's about the concreteness. He's about the detail because he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. What doctor isn't about the detail, right? And so all of this is very relevant as we talk about, um, just not Luke, John, but putting this in, in, in the bigger context. This Tuesday night thematically is devoted, again, to the great Christian thinkers in history and, of course, church history, and we're going to be spending time with the great events in church history. We have to appreciate the detail in history. You're, you're a historian, John. I, I studied a little history in my days in college. You don't get to know the stuff of history until you study the details, and this is what uh, Luke offers us uh, in his gospel. Now, in the following verse and subsequent verses, Luke does something interesting. <laughs> he says, pay close attention to detail. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was uh, Elizabeth. Okay, so historically speaking, we have King Herod, who was... Um, appointed king over Palestine by the Roman Senate in John, we have roughly 40 BC. Uh, and he reigned in Jerusalem for um, approximately 42 years then, 41, 42 years. This mentioning of uh, the division of Abijah, what is that all about? Well, Israel's Levitical, uh, Levit Levitical priesthood, excuse me, was comprised of 24 divisions, John. And what that then meant was uh, each division would oversee the temple court in Jerusalem for two weeks, right? This particular division was known as the 8th Division. I feel like I'm, I, I sound like I'm uh, talking about the Marines or <laughs> yes, something, right. the 8th Division <laughs> of the Infantry. But uh, this is how it was very ordered. It was very structured. And Luke, again, 
paying close attention to the detail, says the division of Abijah. So it's the eighth division. Now, he wants us to understand, you know, where Elizabeth comes from, you know, where Zechariah comes from. But he also wants to highlight this, uh, this detail. And I, I think it's kind of fun. It's certainly, it's, it's something that doesn't um, go by Luke. He, he's attentive to it. Now, there's something else which I think is very important, and that is, once again, the names. The names are always important, John. Zechariah and Elizabeth. Behind a name is a kind of foreordained vocation, purpose, meaning, intentionality, if you will. What does Zechariah mean? God has remembered. God has remembered. Elizabeth, what does that mean in the Hebrew? God of the oath. So in these two names, what do you have? What is the message to the reader? Because in the first century, they would have seen this for what it is, John, because they are acutely aware of the importance of a name and the meaning of what those names signify. Well, God has remembered the oath he swore, right? And this is huge because lest we forget, the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. And how do you, uh, how in the Old Testament did you enter into relationship with God? Well, you swore an oath, right? You, you swore an oath. This was part of the covenant making right. Well, God swore an oath with man and he has remembered that oath. So from their offspring would uh, come forth someone very important, John, to the larger drama of salvation history, covenant salvation history. And you betcha, <laughs> the first century readers were picking up on that. Uh, that is the language that we have between Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, the larger themes as we talk about salvation of Israel, salvation of the nations, salvation of the lowly, really comes through early on because specifically to the salvation of the lowly John, this is a message that includes the poor, the outcast, the ostracized. Women in particular are showcased in this gospel like no other gospel. Yes. Of course, you have the Blessed Virgin Mary and Elizabeth that we're going to be talking about in a bit, but you also have Anna, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna. Uh, in addition, we see this kind of uh, lowliness run itself as a great theme through his parables. As I had already noted, it's Luke alone who recounts the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. So what of this lowliness, John? If you go into this opening chapter, I think it's evident, John, that Luke wants us to see something. What is it? You have the angel Gabriel come to Zechariah with this incredible announcement, right? <laughs> that his wife is with child. And what is Zechariah's response? Does he believe him? No. <laughs> his response is, uh, excuse me, my wife is barren. You know, <laughs> how in the world are you going to do this? And what is uh, the angel's response? You will be silent. And unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, mm. juxtapose that with the great an uh, angelic salutation that you have from 
the angel Gabriel to Mary. Right? Similar news, but greater because she's to become the mother of God. Now, it would suggest at a first glance that Mary is saying the same thing that Zechariah is saying. Really? Uh The best translation is not how can this be, but how will this be? You're going to do this. I just want want to know how because I know not man. How can we understand this, John? I think we can drum this down a little bit by just looking at the word question itself. Zechariah, when you do the translation of the Greek, he's questioning in the contemporary sense of how we question today. We doubt. Now, I was teaching somewhere um, yesterday, and I was teaching somewhere, uh, I think, uh, was it two nights ago? And I was getting lots of questions. And in some of the questions, behind the question was a lot of doubt. I don't think that's true, Joe. Are you sure about that? You know, it was filled with doubt. And then, and then you have the question where the person is genuinely seeking understanding to the word question itself. What does the word mean? Question, to quest, to seek, to understand. Mary is seeking to understand. She's genuinely asking, how are you going to do this? I know you're going to do this. And the phrase, how will you do this, certainly points to that. Uh, It really highlights, John, the larger theme of faith. A lot of sympathy to Zacharias. The guy's old. Elizabeth is old. For decades, they've gone through disappointment after disappointment, and this is the disappointment of their life. And then the angel appears and says, things are going to change. Well, he has this cynicism based from his long experience, but he should remember Abraham. He should remember the many of his ancestors, and he just doubted God's power to do whatever God wants, and he is God's instrument. Mary didn't forget that. She didn't, and uh, I find myself very sympath- uh, sympathetic to Zechariah. <laughs> but as I read this chapter, this opening chapter, John, what I'm reminded of is the need for the gift of faith. Yes, and it, it's a word that really is highlighted by Saint Thomas Aquinas: disposition, disposition. Mary was disposed to respond. Zechariah was not. One had this interior attitude of faith. One was ready to act, the other was not. And so, we talk about this because we need to be mindful of this, the need for the gift of faith. And that Mary, this lowly virgin from Nazareth, was disposed, this, this lowly anawim of God. She was, a, she was a poor one. She was, she was a humble one. She was made to be on bended knee. It is in that disposition literally speaking, on bended knee, John, that we hear God. And so Mary possesses wonderfully, wonderfully this disposition that has her responding to the angel Gabriel. It's interesting, if you were to go into the Old Testament, anytime you hear of the Anawim of God, God's poor ones, you often read with that um, God giving them special assignments, Mm. special tasks. Mm. John uh, Mary was given a special task, you know. It's about being disposed. It's about hearing. It's about listening. And John, or uh, rather Luke, certainly uh, is highlighting this. And so Mary, throughout this gospel, becomes very important 
uh, for Luke. And as we talk about the lowly, John, as we talk about um, those who are on the outside looking in, uh, typically speaking in Jewish culture, we get a, a beautiful parable from Luke, the parable of the prodigal son. And we're not going to read this right now. We don't have the time. But I do want to offer up a brief reflection on the prodigal son to highlight a deeper truth that will lend us, will give us the opportunity to speak to the Good Samaritan. Now, there's a multi-layered wisdom that lies behind the parable of the prodigal son, and it begins with the father. Now, off the top, it is important to note some historical context. It would have been scandalous for their son to request his inheritance while his father was still alive, let alone squander it. So, the action of the father when he sees his son John and he runs to him is, well, simply <laughs> scandalous. It would have been highly inappropriate. And yet, this is exactly what the father does. He runs to him, he embraces him, and he kisses him, as Luke 9.20 records. It is in this story that we have the father as a prototype to God the Father, who desires John mercy and reconciliation. The father stands as the figure who forgives, representing the sentiment of all fathers, of all parents, I love. Second, we have the eldest son. In the eldest son, we have the portrait of envy and entitlement. He puts expectation at the heart of what he says and what he does. And it ultimately leads to disappointment and resentment. Because never forget, expectation leads to disappointment, which breeds resentment. And this is what, we, what he has. He succumbs to the disease, John, of rights and privileges. And what does this lead to? It's fascinating. <laughs> the eldest son says to his father, uh, this son of yours. He doesn't even recognize him as a brother, right? Yeah. This son of yours. It's like, uh, you know, I, uh, if one of our children do something wrong, yeah. I, I say to my wife, um, uh, you know, your daughter, your son's doing something right now. You know, we're being playful about it. But no, in this eldest son, there's something to be had about that moment. This son of yours. He is a man without gratitude. We were just talking about a disposition to hear God. He has lost his disposition to forgive. And ultimately, the eldest son, John, stands as the figure who expects representing the popular sentiment, I deserve. And then you have the prodigal son himself. And the youngest son, we have the full scope of sin, repentance, and conversion. I think certainly we can all identify with this cycle. Ultimately, what we have in the son returning to his father is a figure who repents, representing the sentiment of a contrite heart. I sin. So the father says, I love. The eldest son says, I deserve. And the, the prodigal son says, I, I sin. Why talk about this? Interesting, yeah. John, what we have in this parable is a rich, rich allegory of something so much bigger. And this demands that we give a little nod to the Old Testament here. In the Old Testament, you had the 12 tribes. 
10 of those tribes squandered the inheritance they had as God's chosen people. They went up north to worship on Mount Gerizim, to worship in Samaria, to enter into this depraved lifestyle. And what happened over time? Over hundreds of years, the two tribes who went south, Judah and Benjamin, they became John the elder brother, you see. And when Christ comes, what does he say? You see, what is he all about? He's all about uniting the 12 tribes. Remember, when you go into the Old Testament, after the 12 tribes broke up in 1 Kings 11, 9, 10, 11, 12, read it in, in, in your scriptures there, you see it. All of the prophets come in and they talk about the coming of the Messiah. They talk about just not the coming of the Messiah, but the reunification of the 12 tribes. Of course, the 12 apostles are, are symbolic of that. But it's just not a national covenant that's bound by this Israelite nation. No, now it's all nations. So suddenly, the prodigal son, the younger son, while they represent the ten tribes who went north, who squandered their inheritance, they also represent the world. All of the nations. And Luke wants us to see that. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Why the Good Samaritan? Why the Samaritan? Because they were the nation, they were the people that squandered the inheritance of God. Very important, John. Because this highlights, it puts into focus all of this discussion about the themes of the Gospel of Luke being the salvation of just not Israel, but all nations and the lowly. The Samaritan people were on the outside looking in. And in this parable, this masterpiece of a parable, we are given insight into who Christ came for. Yes. <laughs> Gentile, Jew, Greek alike. It is, it is to remember, John, that the word Catholic itself, katohule uh, or katoholike, pertaining to the whole, means universal. Right. All peoples, right? This is a universal covenant. And so, for Luke, this becomes very important. It is no wonder, John, that after the crucifixion and after the Blessed Virgin Mary, the most painted, drawn, sculpted uh, moment in Scripture, story in Scripture, is none other than the parable of the prodigal son. It touches all of us. It touches all of us. And maybe sometimes we're, uh, we're the elder son. No. And sometimes we're the prodigal son. Or maybe we are the father who God is asking from us uh, the need to forgive those around us. You see, um, beautiful parable. We're all in that parable, aren't we? We yeah, are. We, we are. It's just, we, we kind of navigate the parable. We, we become one character one day and another character the next, you know. Yeah. Um, but it is important to highlight this, John, as we wrap up our time together here this evening, um, because this is what lies at the heart of the gospel, that Jesus came for the poorest of the poor. And he says, come unto me. And Luke wants all the world to see this. And of course, he does it beautifully in a very systematic way. Let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. You've been listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe at jholljmj at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to the Seeds of Truth on KKXX.